0: crosspoint church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor brad evangelista for more information about crosspoint visit insidecrosspoint.com amen good morning it's good to see you if you have a bible open it to daniel chapter 2 it's in the old testament It might be a bit difficult to find. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one of the ones. In fact, I'd encourage you to use one of the ones we have in the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep that Bible as as our gift to you. We'd love for you to keep it, read it, come back, hear God's Word. We believe that the Bible is not just a collection of moral stories, but it is, in fact, God's very holy, inspired Word. The Bible says about itself that it was breathed out by God. And that because God has written his word through human authors, it is without error, it is sufficient, and it has all authority. And so we think that the most important thing that a Christian or anybody can do is expose themselves to God's holy word. Well, as you're finding Daniel chapter 2, let me mention that if you are newer, maybe this is your first Sunday Uh, I realize that the chapter that we're about to read here in just a moment is a difficult chapter to understand. It has some imagery and some dreams and some visions, which can be a challenge. So you're jumping in the middle of a river that's moving. It's got kind of a current that's going pretty fast. And at some point, you may be a bit disoriented. Do not be discouraged. You will be able to understand what is going on, even if you've never opened the Bible before or maybe you're not very familiar with it. Now, you're going to have to hold on, but you will understand. I, I, I guarantee. Well, I, I pray that you will understand. A lot of that depends on me. <laughs> so um, this may be a referendum on my communication skills here in just a second, but let it fall on me, not on you. But this morning, we are going to read a chapter. We began a series through the Old Testament book of Daniel last week. We'll be in it for another eight to nine weeks. And this morning, we're going to look at this dream that this man, Daniel, who is one of God's people, interprets as he, along with many of his kinsmen, the nation of Israel, Jews, they were taken captivity by a foreign power called Babylon. And the whole point of this book is to give God's people instruction as to how they are to live in exile in other words they are in a sort of captivity a babylonian captivity and god is speaking to through this one man daniel to encourage his people as to how to live in a hostile foreign land well friends we don't need to do much application or thinking to realize that that is very applicable to god's people throughout the centuries in particular now Although we may be citizens of America or of some other country, and this may be home for us, ultimately, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, this world, these 80 or 90 years, is never meant to be our ultimate home. But we are pilgrims here on this earth. We are living as God's people continually in exile. And God is writing this book through this man, this prophet, to be an encouragement to his people in exile. Now, there's going to be some dreams and some images that are going to be difficult for us to think about. And the rest of the book is going to get more challenging than the first chapter. But I want you to understand, even as we, as we get into the depths of Daniel... I want you to be encouraged that although we may not understand all the nuances of the symbolism that we're going to read about in the coming weeks, we can hold on to this great comforting truth that God has a purpose for human history. And one of the reasons that God is revealing these dreams to this man in particular, Daniel, that we'll read about in just a moment, these dreams that foretell the future, is that God is encouraging His people in a stressful time that He not only knows the past and the present, but He knows the future. Human history, from the beginning of time to the end of it, has been charting a course superintended by God who knows it all. So with that, uh, let me pray, and then we'll begin reading in Daniel chapter 2. We're going to start and stop along the way, and I'm just going to give you the two truths that I want us to zero in on today right up front. So if you're a note taker, you can do it right now, and then you can kind of let your pen down and, and lean forward. The two truths, there's many truths in this chapter, but the two truths that I want us to gnaw on this morning and digest and stand on and revel in is this. That God uses means to work out His sovereign plan. Secondly, Jesus is the stone that fills the earth. And as we work through this chapter, those two truths will make sense as we fill in and shade in what, what those and how they apply to us. So God uses means to work out His sovereign plan. And Jesus is the stone that fills the earth. We're going to work through this chapter and then we're going to come around as is our custom on the first Sunday of every month. We're going to come together around the Lord's table and receive communion together as a church family. If you're a member of this church, if you're a believer in Jesus that believes the same gospel that we will preach this morning, you are welcome to come to this table with us. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, I want to be right up front that I want you to be confronted with the claims of what it means to understand and know and follow God. And that can only happen through the person and the work of Jesus Christ that we will celebrate and remember and commemorate when we come to this table and take this little piece of bread and this little cup of juice which is pointing towards Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross to die in our place for our sin so that we can be reconciled to God. If you are not a Christian, You should not come to this table. And we say that not because we are trying to exclude you or embarrass you, but because we are trying to love you and let you know that the greatest need that you have is not to just carry out some ritual, traditional religious event, which is not what communion is. But you, before you come to this table, you must consider who Jesus is and make a decision as to whether or not you will trust in Him or not. And if you're trusting in Jesus, then you're welcome to this table to cling to his work on your behalf. Well, with that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for this text, for this Bible, for this truth, that you inspired it for our good and our encouragement. And ultimately, you inspired it so that we would see the work of your son, Jesus. Even this scene that took place hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, we know that ultimately it points towards him and his work. Father, as we gather this morning, we think of Christians around the world who are being persecuted and are under great stress. We pray for grace to them as they endure hostility. We pray for the churches in our city that love Jesus. We are so grateful that there are other churches that are good and preaching the gospel and holding up Christ. In particular, I thank you for Piney Grove Baptist Church on Highway 315 and River Road. I pray for grace for them as that congregation gathers and worships you. Lord, I pray for the, the, work, uh, the church that meets at Fort Benning, the, the soldier uh, chapel there run by chaplains that preaches the gospel. I'm so grateful for Crossroads Community Church there that meets on post. Would you bless them? And thank you for the pastor chaplains that deliver your word to, to military families week after week. Bless them. May people come to faith in Christ this morning there. And now, Lord, we pray that you would do your work for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, and for the salvation of the lost. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So verses 1 through 16, we're not going to read. Let me summarize it for you, how the chapter starts off. Remember, we left off where Daniel... And his three friends refused. They've been taken into captivity. Daniel and his three friends refused the king's delicacies. And they tested. They were allowed to be tested. And God miraculously intervened on their behalf. And after 10 days of eating nothing but vegetables, they were found to be stronger than even the people that were eating steak. And now at the beginning of chapter 2, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, who has taken God's people into captivity, has a dream, and he wants this dream to be interpreted. In fact, the dream troubled him. And so he calls for all the wise men that lived in his empire to come, Daniel being one of those wise men, to come and give him an interpretation of the dream. Well, some of those not wise men, in this instance, not Daniel, some of those wise men came to Nebuchadnezzar, And they said, uh, oh, king, tell us what your dream is. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is so that you can interpret it and just make something up. You tell me not only the interpretation, but you tell me the dream too. And they're like, um, we got nothing. And he says, well, then, if you don't come up with the dream and the interpretation soon, I'm going to destroy not only you, but all the wise men in my kingdom. Daniel gets word of this, and Daniel boldly says, Well, wait a minute. I would like a try. And he steps up through one of the servants of the king and says, I will try to interpret this dream. Well, then that sends Daniel into where we start in verse 17, into calling a prayer meeting for God's help. So in Daniel chapter 2, verse 17, it reads Then Daniel went to his house. And made the matter known to Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. What he's making known is the fact that the king has issued this edict that if some, nobody comes up with this dream and interpretation, we're all going to die. He made it known to his companions, verse 18, and told them, didn't ask them, told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, and let me read this slowly, verses the midway through 20 through 23, that Daniel breaks out in a, a praise or a song or a poem, a confession of thanks to God. Listen to this. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom And might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. That's a comfort, isn't it? He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel calls a prayer meeting of his three friends. God answers them, gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation, and Daniel breaks out in praise to God. God notice just before we continue to read notice the sequence of events here Daniel calls a prayer meeting in community he calls for his friends to with him go before the Lord and answer and to move on their behalf so that they might not be destroyed God answers and Daniel glorifies God. Just one little point of application before we keep reading in verse 24. God is, and if, if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, I think you probably realize that this is a point that I make often. Uh, and it is this, that God is utterly sovereign, right? Okay, you, you get that. In fact, and we've got a couple of young guys that are students at CSU that are pastoral interns. Um, Josh and Teddy, I don't know if they're here, it's probably somewhere around there, and we meet every Monday or Tuesday, and we go over the text. They have a chance to criticize me on the previous sermon and how messed up I was. It's always very humbling to have a 21-year-old tell you how you're jacked up. Anyway, it's helpful. Um, And then we look forward to the next sermon, and uh, I made the point last week that we like to do expositional preaching and just work through books of the Bible right? Because we have to handle everything that's in the Bible eventually if we do it that way. I can't just choose what I want to preach, right? Because every preacher has hobby horses. And Josh, one of the interns, said very wisely, he says, yeah, but I mean, even if you're doing expositional preaching through a book of the Bible, you can still have your hobby horses. And I said, you're very right, young man, and I have my hobby horses too. My hobby horses just actually happen to be right. (Laughter) I'm sorry. I was home. I was just that was that was that was really self-centered. And w- but I'll tell you this: I got my hobby horses. Believe me, I got my hobby horses, and some of them are jacked up. But one hobby horse that I think I kind of have right is that God is utterly sovereign. Right. It's woven through the whole fabric of scriptures. God is not up in heaven wringing his hands, wondering what's going to happen or who's going to be elected president or what's going to happen to the stock market or what some terrorist group is going to do. He is utterly sovereign. I believe that this church in particular rejoices in that fact and it puts steel in our spine and it allows us to get up in the morning knowing that our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115, and he does whatever he pleases. However, one of the potential sand traps or ditches that people like us that exalt in the sovereignty of God can fall into is misunderstanding or underemphasizing that although God is sovereign, God uses means to work out his sovereign plan. Right, He doesn't just conk creation over the head and does what he will do apart from the means of his people obeying him. And we see a perfect example and combination of that here in this text. Notice that God will not be thwarted by a dream or some plan of some ruling despot or tyrannical leader that has his people in captivity. But he uses Daniel and his friends calling themselves to prayer and he uses that as the means by which he brings about his sovereign plan, shows Daniel the dream, and then as we'll read in just a moment, causes Daniel to have boldness to stand before the emperor and proclaim the truth. And notice that the means by which God answers the prayer, he does it in the context of a people, a group of people, in this case just four, who are in community who are living together, who are taking their needs to God together. What does that look like for us, friends? Listen, this may be a bit of a leap, and I may get criticized by this by two 20-year-olds in our meeting when we discuss the sermon on Monday, but I'm going to make it anyway. I think we just see a beautiful picture of the means of community that God has given. These four friends gathered together to pray together. And one of the great weaknesses of American culture is the individuality of of, of the way we do life. Friends, if you are not in community with other Christians and known by other Christians, and you are not able to be vulnerable to other Christians, then you are hamstringing your ability to be the means by which God moves in your life in some sovereign way. One application of that may just be you, if you've been at this church for a while, to come to the membership class in a couple weeks and just hear what we believe about the church. Every week at that, we don't just have 20-year-olds criticize my sermons. Here's what we do. We as pastors pray for people in this church. Some of you have been attending this church for months and months and months, and we don't really know who you are. And if you go through the membership class, we tell you what we believe about the Bible. We hear what you believe about who Jesus is and how you came to faith in him and what your understanding of the gospel is. We do that not to be an obstacle to you or to harass you, but because we care enough about you to get in front of you and hear whether or not you truly understand biblically what it means to be a Christian. You see, there are people all over the South and all over America who are deceived thinking that they are right with God merely because they occasionally show up and gather in a church building. Friends, that is not what it means to be in community with God's people and to worship the one true God. That's part of it. But who who have you sat down in front of that has validated for you that you have a right understanding of God's word and what it means to be a Christian? And we as pastors sit down when people, when they go through the membership class, hear how they came to Christ, hear their understanding of the gospel. Find out ways that we can encourage them and pray for this congregation weekly. And if somebody just kind of stops showing up, if they're a member of this church, we, we, we don't do this perfectly all the time, but we try and go after them as good shepherds to protect them from a wicked world around us, right? And yet we as individual Americans just askew, we just scorn being in community with one another. So if, that, if that's you, just just let that settle on you that we are people that need to be in community with one another and to go to God, living life boldly together for His glory and our good. Verse twenty four. Let's go. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said to him, "Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon." Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. That's bold. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who, is, who will make known to the king the interpretation. That's a little kind of self-congratulatory there on Arioch's part, right? He's like, I think he's wanting a little cred with the king. He do not even know what Daniel's going to say. He just wants to be the guy that brought the guy, right? Verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Remember, Daniel is his Hebrew name. Belteshazzar is the Babylonian name that, that the king gave Daniel in, verse, in chapter 1. The king says, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So what's going on here? Just a summary. Daniel takes action after receiving this revelation from God. He asks for a meeting with the king and he stands before the king and boldly gives glory to God while confessing his own inadequacy. And he confesses that it is God who alone can reveal mysteries or the future for his purposes. And so we see here, again, this truth amplified for us that God uses means to work out his sovereign plan. He used the means of these men in community and their corporate prayer to God. And then he uses the means of Daniel's bravery and boldness to stand before the king and boldly speak and then to give God the glory and not the king. Notice how he doesn't placate the king when he stands before him with false flattery. Nothing about the king. He says, there's no wise men in this kingdom that can interpret this dream. Only God could do it. And it's really not me. God just used me as a vessel. Here's what it is. God knows what you're thinking. And he's going to tell you what you're thinking. So here it is. Friends, that took some guts. And God used the means of Daniel's community, Daniel's prayer, Daniel's boldness to work out his sovereign plan. And just a few points of application here. Notice that Daniel was no glory thief. We are all, by nature, glory thieves. I mean, he could have just slid in a little line there because, you know, I'm, God's given me a lot of gifts. <laughs> None of that. Notice also that Daniel is a great example to us of speaking truth to power now we make a big point here often that we need to read the bible especially the old testament what a, a phrase here that i like a, a phrase that it's not you know i didn't come up with but we like to read the old testament christocentrically in other words with jesus at the center In fact, Jesus tells us to read the Bible that way. In Luke chapter 24, he says that all of the Old Testament, all of the law, all of the prophets, ultimately are about him, point to him in some way. And so we want to avoid moralizing the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? Well, we want to avoid looking at stories in the Old Testament, separating them from the whole story of the Bible separating them especially from the work of jesus on the cross and just look at some moral lesson that we can gain out of them we want to avoid doing that so for example one way that we mention often that that is commonly done is like looking at the story of david and goliath in the old test david and goliath in the old testament right where there's this young shepherd boy who volunteers to slay the giant that's been plaguing god's people with five smooth stones And sometimes maybe you've heard that preached. Well, here's the lesson of David and Goliath, is that if you will be more like David and you will overcome your fears, then you can slay your giants too, right? No, that's not the point of that story. David is a kind of picture or shadow or foreshadow of Jesus, the true shepherd, the true king, who comes to slay the dragon of sin and death For us. And we are not like David, but we are more like Israel, scared, helpless, defenseless in the wood line because we can do nothing against our giants, Goliath, right? And the true meaning of that text is to look at that and see that David is a kind of picture of Christ. So the Christian then finds their victory not in their ability to reach down deep inside, cinch up their bootstraps, try hard overcome their fears, and do it, by golly. But the Christian finds their strength in the fact that Jesus, the true warrior king, has gone before them, has defeated death for them, and now because they are in him, the king, they too can, in Christ, face giants and will be victorious. Now, in that, though, we do see, that's the way we should look at the Bible clearly, But even as we look at the Bible Christocentrically, let's not lose the force of the example that the Bible gives us, right? So yes, we're in Christ and he fights our victory for us and he wins it for us, but we will have to face the giant. We just go in that battle knowing that Jesus has defeated him for us, right? And here in this text, we need to realize that just because Daniel is a kind of picture of Christ means, too, that because we are in Christ, we, too, may be called on to speak the truth to power in our day, to not be, and I'm not talking about necessarily having a march on the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. It it may just be you being a platoon leader or a platoon sergeant, or a team leader in the army, and you know that something unrighteous is going on, and you need to stand up, and not for self-preservation, but for the sake of righteousness, because Christ is in you, because Christ has gone before you, because you are Christ, and you are owned by something much bigger than the military or your position, you need to stand up for righteousness and say, no, I'm not going to do that. There's a thousand different applications in all of our lives. We must speak the truth to power. So what, what, does this, what does this look like for us to be people that are used as God's means to work out his sovereign plan before we finish out the chapter? Just a couple thoughts. What does this look like for us? Well, one thought is, let's be people who realize that we are living In exile, I mentioned it at the very beginning. America is not our ultimate home. When we, as American Christians, act shocked and surprised at the state of our culture, I think we run the risk of exposing our ignorance to the history of God's people. Do you realize that the past 200 years in America have been... The way the church and Christians have been treated in America have been absolutely the abnormal way that things go for God's people. And for many of us, that blessing of God for His divine purposes, for whatever purposes He's using America for has lulled American Christians to sleep and made them more comfortable with their modern Babylon than they are with being God's people in it. And we are shocked when God's people are mistreated. And we forget the fact that we worship one who is convicted and executed as a criminal of the state. Friends, Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 3 verses 21, 20 and 21. This is, this is something American Christians need to hear often. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, friends, I am so thankful. I'm an American. I mean, come on. I went to the United States Military Academy. I served this country in our military. I mean, I had Lee Greenwood on repeat. <laughs> Proud to be, and I am. Right. Told you the stories. My brother used to make fun of me because when Reagan came on TV in the early 80s, I used to stand at attention. was <laughs> like... Relax, you little freak. (laughs) I'm so thankful that God in His providence caused me to be born here. And I was born in a place where a mile down the road there was a fence to a place we like to call Mexico. And I saw up front every day how blessed I was to live in a land where things generally work. But friends, do you see how that can lull us to sleep and can make us privileged people who think that God owes us something like comfort and the American dream in these 80 years when that has never been promised to God's people. We are pilgrims here in this earth in exile for God's purposes, for the display of His glory, for a greater joy. We live in exile. That's just one thought that it looks like for us. Second thought about what it looks like to be God's people in community that work out or means that work out a sovereign plan is that let's be people who pray together in community. Let's be people like Daniel and his three friends that when confronted with life in exile aren't just lulled to sleep or complacent with it, but who pray earnestly, with expectation that God has us here for a reason, right? But aren't we, I mean, aside from just being lulled to sleep by comfort, And the American dream, we're just lulled to sleep by recreation. I mean, half of you right now, probably between the time when I started this sermon and right now you've checked Facebook two or three times, right? You're just lulling yourself to sleep. We just mindlessly entertain ourselves with frivolity and it numbs our ability to really pursue God and be used as people in exile for the glory of God. Because we just entertain ourselves to death. And let's be people that have a sense of purpose and earnestness and pray together and seek God together and encourage one another. Don't you? I mean, come on. Aren't there's, isn't there more going on than what we read there when Daniel calls his friends together and he says, hey man, this is, the king's going to kill us all. We need to pray. Don't you think there was a lot of backroom discussion? What? And don't you think there was a lot of encouragement? What do you mean? We're going to die? Yes. Yes. That's what he says. So let's pray. Don't you think there was a whole lot of fear and anxiety? And don't you think that there needed to be a whole bunch of exhortation and encouragement and sticking with one another, saying, it's going to be okay, let's let's seek God together. Friends, things have not changed. And we need to be people that link arms together and don't slumber in, slumber out, and sleepwalk through these 80 years as sleepy, tired, satisfied, grumpy American Christians. amen. And then finally, let's be people who, when we have the opportunity to speak clearly, winsomely, boldly, and graciously to power. Now, let me just say this. I'm, I get going. I get that. And I'm raised by an Italian football coach. And so At some point in most of my sermons, they devolve into a halftime speech as if we're down by three touchdowns. I get that. (laughs) In fact, one time when I was a little kid, my dad's team was getting worked over, and he had this Gatorade bottle, and I was standing over like in that little halftime room where they gathered, and I was kind of sitting around in the corner, and he was yelling at his defense, and I can't repeat everything that he was saying. But he took that bottle and threw it against the wall and it went about two feet above my head and just boom, just, hey, dad, I'm just your eight-year-old son over here in the corner. Um, Listen, I think that this room is filled with people who are wonderful examples of what I am exhorting. I do. And I think that there are some of us that, that, quite frankly, need a kick in the rear. And I think that I in both of those. Check with me on Monday. I may be earnest and sincere, laser-focused on the purposes of God. Check with me on Thursday. I may blow a whole day browsing ESPN.com, watching Pardon the Interruption, and wondering what Jennifer's going to fix for dinner. Right, I mean, I am spiritually schizophrenic. And I think most of you are too. And so we, I want to simultaneously encourage us and spur us on and exhort us to love and good deeds. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. Daniel tells him the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding of brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was filled was, was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet perfectly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone... Was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chafe, like the chafe of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So just take in that scene. He's saying there's like this big figure, this statue, had a head of gold, had this torso of silver, had this waist and legs of bronze, and then lower legs and feet of iron and clay right this statue made up of these four precious metals and then there's this stone this mysterious stone that was not cut by any human hand came and smashed the whole statue so what does it mean daniel tells him in verse 36 this was the dream now we will tell the king its interpretation you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, again, God is sovereign, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. I'll notice that, that God has given rule to this tyrannical, horrible leader. God was involved in that. He says, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom, inferior to you, shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw Iron mixed with soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44 Listen to this. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Okay, so I know we're wondering. And I think sometimes Christians unwittingly get caught in the weeds of a vision like this and they wonder well, who are these kingdoms? Who are these four kingdoms, right? And books have been written and charts on the internet and all sorts of crazy stuff about who these four kingdoms are. I think it's relatively accepted that these four kingdoms represent four successive kingdoms that, that, that have already happened, that came in with Babylon and then the four successive kingdoms after that. So just so we know what they are, Babylon is like the gold head. And then after the Babylonians, the Persians come and conquer the Babylonians. And they're like the silver. And then after the Persians, Greece comes and conquers and is ruling the world. And they're the bronze. And then after Greece, Rome comes and is now in charge. And we see these four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Don't be caught up. Don't make the main point of the passage, the statue, With its varying types of stone. And these kingdoms wondering who they are. That's not the point. The point is kingdoms come and kingdoms go. The point is the stone that comes and smashes those kingdoms. And then establishes the one true kingdom. Now friends, who is this stone referring to? Friends, this is referring to Jesus. And that's the second truth that we want to end on here is that Jesus is this stone that will fill the earth and establish God's kingdom forever and ever and ever. So we see in the Bible, we're not just kind of pulling that out of thin air. We see in the Bible, laced throughout all of it, this stone metaphor Picturing, foreshadowing, or pointing back to Jesus. So at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 49, at the end of Genesis, remember when we went through that a couple of years ago, Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is dying and he's issuing his last Blessing to his sons. And in Genesis 49, he speaks about this stone of Israel who will protect and shepherd God's people. He's speaking about Jesus. Then we read in the Psalms, the writer of Psalm 118 says this about this stone that we read about in the Bible. Let me start in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So this psalmist is writing about this cornerstone who the builders will reject, but has become the chief cornerstone. And then we read about that stone again here in Daniel, this picture of this stone that will come and smash the kingdoms of this earth and establish the kingdom of God. And then in the New Testament, we hear Peter interpret what that stone means in Psalm 18. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll have it on the screen. Listen to what Peter says, starting in verse 4 of 1 Peter 2. As you come to him as God's people, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6 For it stands in Scripture, and he's going to quote now what we just read Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So now this stone is identified not just as an idea, but as a person. Whoever believes in this stone will will not be put to shame. Verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So now we see the Old Testament being shed light on by the New Testament, Peter is telling us what this stone is. He's saying it is Jesus. And Jesus is this cornerstone. And notice the two functions of this stone. For those who trust in Him, who trust and believe in this stone, it is a protection. It is a foundation. It is the cornerstone. It's what you build your life on. For those that do not trust in this stone, the kingdoms of this earth, and people who do not trust in this stone. It is a stone of judgment and destruction, a stone of stumbling. Friends, we have to stop here and ask the question, what is Jesus to you? He is one of these two to every person that lives. He is either a stone That is your refuge and protection. Or he is a stone that is a stone of judgment who will destroy you. Back to the first one, a stone of protection, a stone of foundation. What is he protecting you from? Not just Babylon, not just a bad American president, not just our culture. Jesus is a cornerstone that is ultimately shielding you from God's wrath. The Bible is very clear, friends, that we are all born as rebels against the one true God. And the greatest need that every person has in this earth is not to navigate through their particular culture more successfully, but they need to be made right with a holy God. And because we are sinners and because God is ultimately holy, we will all stand before him one day and give an account of our lives. And those that are not protected or represented by the stone Jesus will bear God's punishment alone. And that stone which offers us protection, will come crashing down on us. The other type of person is those that are trusting in this stone. They're like the wise man at the end of Matthew chapter 7 who's building their life on the rock, who is protected from the wind and the waves, not merely of this world, but of a holy God who must maintain his holiness and can let nothing unholy, which is us, into his presence. And the only way we can make it into His presence is if we are shielded by the stone that protects. And if we are in that stone, and then the righteousness of that stone, which is Jesus, becomes ours, and we are safe. Friends, which one, which stone is the stone in your life? The stone of stumbling? Or the chief cornerstone? The stone of protection? And then it ends with these few verses. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So Daniel successfully, rightly interpreted his dream, told him what the dream is. It was spot on. And Nebuchadnezzar realizes that God's on his side and temporarily here promotes Daniel and his friends. Now, this is not going to last very long because next week we're going to get into Daniel chapter 3 where it goes south again because Nebuchadnezzar is not truly trusting in the one true God. He's just, well, he's got his issues and we'll get into that next week. But he's going to throw these men into a fiery furnace here. But the point is, is that Daniel stands before the king and testifies that there is a stone that will come and will destroy these earthly kingdoms. And will set up the one true kingdom. In just a moment we're going to come around to these communion tables. And in the New Testament Paul exhorts the Corinthian church that when they come to this table. They should examine themselves. Christians should examine themselves. Here's a few questions that I want to, in light of Daniel chapter 2, I want to examine myself before I come to this table. One question I want to ask myself and I want us to ask ourselves is in light of Daniel and his friends boldly standing before the rulers of their day, are we being used by God as means in our present exile for the glory of God? Or are we just merely grumpy Christians? Who are angry because a way of life is passing away. I want to come to this table and I want to ask myself this question as well. I want to see this rock that destroys kingdoms. But I don't want to just leave it out there sort of globally. You see I know that Jesus is going to establish the one true kingdom. And that whether it's Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome or America, or Russia, or Iran, I know that Jesus is sovereign over those kingdoms. The question I want to ask myself is, is Jesus sovereign over the kingdoms of my own heart? Are there rebellious kingdoms that exist within me that the stone needs to crush? I want to ask that before I come to the table. And then I want to, again, afresh ask myself, am I taking refuge in the rock or am I stumbling over it? That's the most important question that any person can ask. Are you trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross to bear God's wrath on your behalf? rise again in victory over death, sin, and the grave, commanding you to turn from trusting in yourself and putting your hope in him. Are you standing and hiding in that rock? Or is Jesus merely an add-on to you to help you live a better life and ultimately you are stumbling over him because you are not truly bowing down to him? Friends, there is no more important question that a human can ask themselves. Ask it even now if you find that Jesus is really a stumbling block for you, you need not figure out how to... You need to look away from yourself and hide under him and say, Jesus, only you can shield me from the holiness of a righteous good God. I hide in you and your work, not mine. Do that even now, friend. I'm going to pray. The team is going to come back and lead us in a song. We're going to gather around this table. Let's hide in the rock. Let's stand on the rock that fills the whole earth. And let the glory of God that fills the earth, it we'll read about in Hebrews, Habakkuk chapter two, let it fill our very hearts this morning. Father, as we come to the table. I pray that you would simultaneously convict and encourage. May you put ammonia underneath our nostrils. We're all like boxers that have been hit in the face for round after round. And life and reality is blurry. And we're prone to be comfortable with this foreign land. Would you put smelling salts underneath our nose by the grace of your Holy Spirit and wake us up to the reality of who you are and why we are here and what our mission is. Would we see ourselves as people who are living in a land of exile being used by you for your ultimate glory and end? And as we come to this table, Lord, would you let us see Jesus, the stone that was cut by no human hand, that has been God the Son forever and ever, that has come and defeated death and sin in the grave on the cross, and has established his kingdom here, and will come again to finally and fully consummate. His kingdom forever and ever. May we find our refuge in Him alone. And may no person in this room leave here today stumbling over Jesus, but finding refuge in Jesus the stone. Friend, if that is you, Turn from trusting in yourself. Cry out to him right now and say, God, I I may not understand everything that this man has said, but I realize I am stumbling. I, I am falling. And I cling to you and you alone and what you have done in Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. And I put all of my hope in what he has done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and not in anything that I can do to make myself right with you. Friend, do that. Just cry out in your own words to God right now. He will answer that prayer. In fact, he's giving you the ability to even utter that prayer. He's putting the breath and the faith in you right now to even want to Pray that prayer. So cry out to him. Even now. Before you leave this room today, find somebody, one of the pastors, maybe somebody that you know to be a Christian, and tell them that I am trusting in Jesus as my rock for the first time today. Do not leave this room today unless you go public with that. Let somebody know so that they can help you in the first steps and what it means to cling to Jesus as your rock and your Savior. And for the rest of us, as we respond now in song and as we come to the table, oh, may we examine ourselves and find grace at the foot of the cross and at the table of our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's all stand together and as you are ready to come whenever you are ready. Come to the table to the usher closest to you and take the bread and the cup. And then Robert will lead us to receive the elements together as a faith family. So you can come and receive the elements and hold on to them until we take them together.